0: Our scripture reading is uh, taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 5 through verse 18. You can find it in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1162. Let us pray for that illumination and understanding and preparation that we spoke of earlier in that Confession. Lord, we hope that through our worship and praise of you, our hearts have been opened. May our minds and wills join that we might reflect upon your word with understanding through the guidance and conviction of your Holy Spirit. May you anoint your servant Brenna that as she proclaims this passage to us, we would have a deeper understanding and appreciation of the mysteries and the fullness of life found in you. We ask all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. Over the past decade, researchers have seen an alarming trend in children when they are asked the age-old question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, maybe you remember being asked this question when you were little, and maybe the answer for you was a teacher, or a firefighter, a police officer, or an astronaut. And while those answers are still prevalent, there is, in fact, another answer on the rise. Now, when researchers ask children what they want to be when they grow up, The fastest rising answer is simply famous. We are a culture that is obsessed with fame. Celebrity culture and worship has led to extreme fandom and people going to greater and greater lengths to get attention. In 2015, there were anywhere between 500 and 700 different reality TV shows from shows like Teen Mom and The Real Housewives of Every City to Fixer Upper, House Hunters, Chopped Top Chef. You pick it, you name it, it's there. And if it's not TV, maybe it's Instagram, where people literally spend hours of their life every day trying to take a picture of their food or their makeup or their shoes or their coffee, all hoping it gets picked up so they can go viral for their 15 minutes of fame. And this isn't something that we get to just pass off as the fault of younger generations. Because the reality is our children and our grandchildren, they reflect what they have been taught. It is in humanity's fallen nature, that desire to worship someone or something most oftentimes ourselves. In the time of Paul, there was literally a cult of worship for the emperor. And if people didn't worship the emperor, perhaps they worshipped the old Greek heroes that the poets wrote about. And as Paul sits and writes his letter to the Philippians, he is living in prison literally in the center of it all in the emperor's household. And he watches as the people of Rome strive and run by him, trying to reach for something they think will bring them joy and hope and security. Our own desire for fame is rooted as well in a desire that is misplaced and broken. A desire to be seen, to influence, to belong. Researchers have found that there's two common traits in people who would seek fame two traits that rise above all the rest. And the first is probably not a surprise. The first most common trait is a higher level than average of narcissism. That is the desire to have attention focused on oneself. But the second trait was surprising because the second most common, higher than average trait found in those who would seek fame is the need to belong. That is to feel positively and consistently connected to others. Now, I'm sure it's easy for most of us, if not all of us, to call into mind a person we know like this. Someone who perhaps is a little too self-absorbed, a little too needy. Maybe they're in our schools, maybe they're our friends, maybe they're in our small groups, maybe they're in our families. What is harder to recognize are these traits in ourselves. We may not always have a perceived desire for fame in our own hearts, but we do have something in us that seems to clamor for attention, recognition, power in whatever sphere we live. Paul writes to the Philippians and to us to remind us that the one whom we should be emulating, the one whom we should be idolizing, is nothing like the celebrities and idols of our own lives. He was not seeking fame for fame's sake. He wasn't seeking fame at all. The Christ hymn, Those verses we read from 5 to 11 today, they pick up where Paul left off when we read last week that he was asking the Philippians to make his joy complete. This is another request he has for them. That they would have a mind like Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell them just what that mind is. Paul tells us that Jesus was equal to God. And yet, Even with all that status, the power, the privilege and perks that that brings, he chose not to exploit it. The message version of the text says he did not think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. The Greek would have us understand that he didn't grasp at it. He didn't hold on to it and fight it and force it. In many ways, in scripture, in many places, we are shown that Jesus is the opposite of Adam. If Adam represents the weakness of humanity, Jesus is what it could be at its pinnacle. And in Adam, we see all of us. Those who would try to steal equality with God. Those who would try to take away by force the honor and power and worship that does not belong to them. In Jesus, we see the one who does in fact have equality with God, and yet chooses to lay all of it down, to take on to himself all the pain and disadvantages of humanity. I've been thinking a great deal lately about this nature of Jesus and the call that it places on our own lives. How many of us are willing to take on even the smallest bit of indignity of others? It feels like more and more lately that the common refrain that I hear is simply, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to pay more for someone else. I shouldn't have to give up my space for someone else. I shouldn't have to change anything about my life for someone else. We reject any claim on our own lives and our own privilege as an affront to some sort of ineffable right. Could we imagine if Jesus had taken this approach? Why should I suffer for their sins? They choose to live like that, If they wanted my help, they should have made better choices. Their poor choices are not my responsibility. Thank God that Jesus is not like us. That instead, he chose a life of obedience to God. Chose to submit himself even to death, not for his own fame or his own recognition, or his own comfort, but he chose to cast everything aside to help those who could not help themselves. Because, my friends, we cannot help ourselves. He had every opportunity to grasp and hold on to what was rightly his, what he deserved, and yet he chose a different path. And here is where we find the paradox of the gospel. That it is when we lay something down that it fully comes back to life. In giving up his life, in laying down his fame and his power, all of the things that could have been promised to him in Israel at that time, his humility is transformed. And Paul writes, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Perhaps, it is Paul's particular situation that allows him to see so clearly. As he stands at a place in which the reality of the end of his own life is just around the corner, he can look out and see a future for those for whom he laid a beginning. A few years ago, I spent two weeks in Orvieto, Italy, It is a town, a small town, a few hours north of Rome. It rises 600 feet up on a rock above the valley, and towering over the city itself is the Orvieto Cathedral. Craftsmanship is incredible, but the thing about it that I found the most interesting was that this cathedral took over 300 years to build. The first stone was laid in 1290. And it was finally considered complete in 1591. Generation after generation of townspeople and craftsmen poured their life into that cathedral. And I think about what it would have been like to be those builders. Carving and laying stone and working day in and day out, knowing that they would never see, that they would never enjoy the fruits of their labor. And I wonder at their motivation and their commitment to something that was so much bigger than themselves, than their own lives. In many ways, I believe Paul is like those builders. For he has set the Philippian church in motion, but he knows that he is not the designer of that. Nor will he be there to see it finished. But he is going to do and is doing the best he can to send them directions and clear plans so that they can press on. They can keep striving towards the goal that was set out. And as he tells them this, as he reaches out, we realize that he's not speaking to an individual, but to a whole community. If we could go back through every Bible in these pews in this room, I would have you open them up and take a pen, and everywhere where you see it say, you, where it says, you, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, I would have you cross out the you and write in, y'all. Because that's what's actually being said there. That's, it's a plural. It's a plural pronoun. Because it's not about our individual lives and our individual salvation that Paul is talking about. He's talking instead about our communal salvation. About who we are as a body, a group of people who are working towards something that is bigger than ourselves. And that is why he tells them they have to figure out how to work with one another. They have to figure out how to love one another, to not quarrel and fight and complain because they are called to show the world there's a different way to live. The words he chooses in those verses in 14 and 15 are purposeful. They're there to remind us and evoke a memory of the Israelites in the desert who didn't trust God who instead sought to build their own idols, to make their own way, and the destruction that they faced as a consequence. Instead, Paul tells us and them to shine like stars in the universe. Now, when we hear the word stars in our minds, we tend to think of those bright shining bodies in the sky. Or maybe more realistically, when we hear the word star, we tend to think of those celebrities that put their hands into the cement in Hollywood. But Paul is not telling us to be like that. He's not telling us to shine for our own purpose, for our own glory. Instead, maybe it's better understood like we understand our moon. That is an object that doesn't have light on its own, but exists to reflect a greater light. That exists to show in the darkness the light never leaves us. We are called in this world not to strive to make our own mark, but to strive to show those who are trapped in the darkness that there is light even if they can't see it. Paul ends his plea to the Philippians by saying that even if his life is to be sacrificed, he rejoices. Because it has been done as an offering to Jesus. And he reflects his light into the world. And he warns these same Philippians not to cry and mourn and be sad for him. Not to bemoan his captivity, but instead to rejoice with him. Rejoice that he has lived a life in the example of Jesus, because every life that does that is worth celebrating. In Seattle in 2001, I was living there at the time, and I remember that there was a day when there was a young girl who happened to find herself standing on the edge of a bridge. And as she stood there, it was early morning. It was rush hour, and people were in a hurry to get to work. And so, as they drove by, as she caused more traffic, they began to yell. They began to tell her to just jump already, to get it over with, to quit holding them up. And she did. Just recently, there was another bridge in London. This time, a young man stood on the edge during rush hour. But instead of yelling, three other strangers came out of nowhere. And they wrapped their arms around the man, one grabbing his feet and another his belt and another his shoulders, and they held on to this man for two hours while they waited for rescue crews to come and to save him. We have two ways that we can live life. We can live life in a way where we are our own source of light, where we try to be our own stars, seeking our own fame, and instead what we leave is darkness around us. Or we can live a life in the footsteps of Christ, where we reflect the light of Jesus, where we stand in the darkness And we tell people that they are not alone. Where we lay ourselves down for others and find a life that is beyond our expectation. It's a choice that is laid out for us. We just have to choose wisely as Paul asks us to do time and time again. Amen.